If you have your Bibles with you tonight, we're going to go from Daniel, we finished last week, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We'll be bouncing between the Pauline epistles and the prophets on, on, uh, on Sunday nights in an effort to uh, get us completely through the Word of God. So tonight we're, we're going to begin the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. As we look at, at 1 Thessalonians, we, we want to get a, a grasp. So many times when we look at the Pauline epistles and the letters that he writes, we want to understand what's the, what's the purpose, what's going on, what are these people all about. So in order to grasp that, why don't we hold our finger there and go to Acts. In Acts chapter 17, uh, we're going to read as Paul begins the, the work that would become uh, the church in Thessalonica. So in Acts chapter 17, give us a little bit of the background. And he begins, Acts 17 verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So how would he do that? He didn't, do, he didn't use the, the New Testament. He used the Old. He'd show them in Psalm 22 that, that the anointed, the, the Christ, was not to... Uh, suffer corruption, that he wouldn't leave his body in the grave, that he would be risen from the dead. He showed him in Isaiah 53 how the, the, the Messiah, the Mashiach would come and how he would suffer, that he would be crucified, which at the time Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53 wasn't the, the method of, of capital punishment in that time. He'd go to Daniel chapter 9 and say, look, Messiah will be cut off, but not for his sins, but for the sins of the people. He would go throughout the Old Testament. You remember Jesus told the Pharisees, guys, and and I think it's important that we kind of grasp this concept. There's a few things Jesus said to the Pharisees that ought to give us cause to ponder. For example, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you'll not enter into the kingdom of God. Well, the Pharisees were looked upon as the most righteous of all. The Pharisees would memorize the Old Testament scriptures. I don't know about you, but I can't memorize a a chapter, let alone several books. To be able to recite them, to be able to to live their life by them. But what happened? The Pharisees got so caught up in, as we shared this morning, straining out a gnat, they would swallow a camel. They got so caught up in all the little insignificant things, they forgot about the main thing. And I think that's what Jesus was laying out to them when he talked to them, when he he laid that before them. We want to have a righteousness that exceeds them. Where is that found? Is it found in and of ourself? The Bible tells us that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's Old Testament. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. No good for anything. God has rejected the righteousness of man. He has accepted the righteousness of his Son. The only righteousness that will be accepted in the presence of God is that of His Son. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So we need, we need to understand, we need to comprehend that that's that work that, that God is doing in us. 
And we want to have a desire like the Pharisees. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures daily, for in them you, you have life. Well, that's a true statement. I mean, the, the bottom line is Jesus laid that out for the Pharisees. That ought to really be a part of who we are. That we're in the Scriptures daily. If I go a day without spending time in the Word, I notice a difference in my attitude. And it don't take very long. If I string more than a couple days together, you know, I go right back to the old me. I didn't like him all that much. I want to be a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has laid out beforehand for us. So we need to search the Scriptures daily, but what's the other part Jesus told them? You search them, for in them you have life, but it is these that speak of me. Every story... We're going to find Christ in it. You get to something you don't understand in the Scriptures. You're reading it, man, I don't really get it. And especially in the Old Testament, plug Jesus into it. Plug Jesus into it and see if that opens up the the gates of your understanding to be able to see what it is that God's saying. Because, folks, from Genesis all the way through, He's been telling us, the people, the world, that He would send His Son, that His Son would die and, and pave the way that we would have a relationship with Him. So when Paul would go into the synagogues, that's what he taught. He'd open up the Septuagint. Jesus himself taught out of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures that was translated, the first book ever translated, by the way, is the Bible in 270 B.C. Translated into the Greek, and that is what they taught from. You ever wonder when you look at the New Testament and it, and it writes out for you, the Old Testament scriptures, and it doesn't quite line up when you go back and read it? Well, that's because the New Testament is using the Septuagint form of the Old, and our Old Testament comes straight out of the Hebrew. It's the difference in the translations. But the understanding, that's all the same. So as we go through, this is what he did. He went in, he taught them what was to happen with the Christ. What happened with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? What was it when they stopped with Jesus and they're talking with Jesus? Hey, you know, what's going on? What was it that Jesus said? Do you not know that the Christ is to suffer? That he was to die and raise again? And so, beginning at Moses, he taught them through the Old Testament Scriptures. Where did Moses begin? First five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses. We're studying through Exodus right now on Wednesday night. As we go through that law, we're going to see Jesus all throughout the pages of Scripture. We're going to see the promise of the, of the prophet. We see the very first prophecy in the entire Bible, Genesis 3.15, that God would use the seed of the woman to destroy the serpent. He would use the seed of the woman to destroy Satan. We see that fulfilled in Christ. His death on the cross and His resurrection sealed Satan's fate. It's over. It's done. The battle has been won. And so we look forward to that day when Jesus returns and sets all things to right. But here, there's, there's Paul laying this stuff out for them in the synagogues. In verse 4, chapter 17 of Acts. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So we see a move of the Spirit, teaching through the Word of God. Folks, the Word of God will always do what it is sent to do, the work of the Word. 
People will always wonder and and things will always go south whenever a church gets away from the Word of God. The most important thing, the most important thing is that we're sharing the Word of God, that it's going forward because God said, my Word will accomplish what it was sent to do. My Word will do that work. And so He taught His Word and people got saved. He taught His Word and people came. They came to grow. They came to learn. The devout Greeks or the God-fearers, those who were not Gentiles but were allowed to come to worship that believed in the God of, of the Jews but would not go through the ritual to become a Jew. Those and, and some of the leading women in the area. Now he goes on in verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace And gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Wouldn't that be a great thing to hear people say about Calvary Chapel Buell in in our town, in our area? These people who turned the town upside down. Or the reality is turn the town upside right. It's already upside down. They just don't know it's upside down. But they turned the world upside down. And Jason has harbored them. And and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Listen, they find him. And they, they get rid of Paul and Silas. Folks, Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica three weeks. That's it. Three weeks sharing the word of God and the church was born. And Thessalonica bloomed. Now at the time we, we come to this writing of this epistle, the church there is about a year old. They're Filled with excitement. You remember when you, when you were only saved for just a year? You remember that initial excitement that you have? It's so vital for a body to constantly be renewing that within itself. Because what happens is, we'll grow stale. We'll grow stale. There'll, there'll be a movement. And then they'll build a, a monument. And then it becomes a mausoleum. And we stop going anywhere. We want to have that hunger, that thirst. When we look at the book, this epistle to the Thessalonians, realize these guys are are young in the Lord. They're desiring for everything that God has. They got some issues. They got some problems. They got some things going on. But as we look at the book, as we see what the book is laying out for, he's, he's calling us to understand that fire, that consuming fire of God, what's going to propel us to go to greater and greater depths with the Lord? And it's not just what stuff's on the surface. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be deeper than, than anything we understand, anything that we know. It's constantly got to be going deeper in Christ. There are things that we experience, things that we learn, things that we know on the surface. But God wants more. He wants more. You think you're committed or submitted now? He wants more. He always wants 
everything that we have to give. And then he tells us you'll never be disappointed. You'll never be disappointed that you gave all you had to me. But nobody else is going to give you that promise that can stand by it. Marine Corps once upon a time told me I'd never be disappointed. It didn't take but a couple hours for me to be disappointed. The first fella hollered at me and shaved off all my hair, yelled at me, screamed at me, and wouldn't let me sleep for like three days. I stopped having fun pretty quick. Oh, I don't know what this is all about. And I was disappointed as I went through the, my, my time in there and the things that happened and the, and the politicking that went on, whatever. All that stuff, that's just junk. It will never happen in your relationship with Christ. It will happen with your relationship with people. But not with Him. He is faithful and true. And we can trust Him to help us grow. We can trust Him to help us move forward. So we begin, as we take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it begins, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that is, every time I look at Pauline greetings, I'm going to stop and we're going to take our time because first he writes to the Thessalonians, to the church in who? In God and in Christ. Most important position is not where our building is in terms of the city, but are we in God? Are you in Christ? Paul is going to talk about being in Christ 169 times in 13 epistles. 169 times. I'd say that's something that he feels passionate about, something that's important, something that speaks of how we become a new creation. Where are we a new creation? In Christ Jesus. It's all about being in Him. Didn't Jesus say in John chapter 15, Abide in me? Because a branch of itself can bear no fruit unless what? It abides in the vine. So you can do nothing without me. Without Christ, we're not capable of doing anything. But the body, the church, needs to be found in Him. In God. In Christ. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we want to be found. He goes on, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's always going to talk about grace and peace. We've heard it a hundred times. The word for grace is, is cheris or, or goddess in the Greek, which means grace. It was the Greek greeting, the greeting for the Gentile. If you walk by... That's the word that you would say to him. If you walked by a Hebrew or a Jew, you would say shalom, peace, grace and peace. Because Jesus has brought together in one, in Christ, all people, all tied together. There is now therefore no Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, nor man nor woman, for we are all one in Christ, in him. So vitally important that we experience that true oneness with him and then as he goes on paul over and over again he's going to lay out for us these little nuggets of how we can understand hey i want to move forward with the lord i want to go deeper with him i don't want to just stay here on the surface i don't want to just warm a pew then we have to understand this heart of paul because he's always after his greeting going to do this 
We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul was truly thankful for them. You ever come to the place when you're dealing with people that you start just to see the problems that they create rather than the blessing of who they are? Because Paul didn't ever get that way. Even writing his letter to the Corinthians, who were full of problems, and and the Thessalonians got some some things that Paul's going to be straightening out, but he's not focused on that. Was he focused? Man, I give thanks for you. You're my brethren. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I give thanks to God always for you. Praying always for the body. That's a desire that God has for each and every one. Paul would say to us, pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop. Now what does that mean? I've got to close my eyes everywhere I go and I'll be bumping into everything, crashing the truck. No, what's he, what's he calling about? A spirit of prayer. That you're all, how, how close are you to the Father? How close are you to praying? It's just letting it come out your lips. And it's right there. It doesn't have to be this or uh, uh, an elaborate thing. It doesn't have to have an opening and a, and a body and a conclusion. We don't have to pray the phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ, although it's become a habit of the church, we're supposed to pray in His Spirit. We're supposed to pray according to His character, according to who He is. We just can put our prayers up before Him. When the thought comes to us, about a brother or a sister, about someone we're struggling with, someone we're not. When that thought comes to us, be thankful for them. Because thankfulness is a choice. It's a choice. Just like love is a choice. We can choose love. God took his people and he brought them to the valley of decision. And he put priests on both sides and, and one group of priests would shout down, all the curses that would happen if they broke the law. And the other priests on the other side would shout down all the blessings if they obeyed the law. And so these guys are shouting on both sides, and God is saying, here we are in the valley of decision. You have two ways you can go. And God said to them, choose life. Choose life. Choose thankfulness. Choose to pray choose to put your heart in god's hands and allow him to mold you and make you into what he wants you to be an attitude of thankfulness will carry you a long ways a long ways he wants us to have a thankfulness giving thanks to god always and making mention of you in our prayers thankfulness and intercession thankfulness for the brethren and then lifting them up Lifting up our our brothers and sisters, our friends, our family, our neighbors, the people around us. Moses would go so far in interceding for a people who was constantly clamoring and complaining about who he was. He would say to God, I am willing to go to hell, write my name out of the book of life, and save your people. That's a pretty intense prayer. Paul says the same thing. I would be, you could, you could declare me anathema, accursed, for the sake of my brethren. Because he wants his brethren to be touched. Folks, we want things to happen in our community. We want things to happen in our neighborhood, at the workplace. 
It's all going to begin with our prayer life. It's all going to begin being found in Christ, lifting these things up before Him. Hezekiah the king, when he faced the biggest challenges in his life, he would go before the Lord and he'd open up the letters of Shennacherib and he would say, God, this is what this evil king is saying about you. I don't know what to do, but here's, here is what he says and I'm bringing myself to you. I'm here. Nehemiah would call the people to grab a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other and build the wall. Warriors on the wall, building the wall. As they're laying the brick and the mortar to protect their family, they're holding a sword in one hand and they're on their knees building that wall. It's a picture of prayer. It's a picture of standing in the gap for our brothers and sisters and lifting them up. Being willing to go to prayer before you're ever willing to share anything about anybody else. A word of gossip, a story of this or that. Before you share that story, you pray. Tell God you're thankful for Him. Lift them up to Him and see if that story is still on your lips. Or if it's gone now. As we stand in the gap for our brothers and sisters, making mention of them always in our prayers. In verse 3, remembering without ceasing. What This is so key for us to grasp. This is what he focused on. He didn't focus on, what's your problem? Why don't you understand this doctrine or that doctrine? Or what's your, what's your deal that you don't want to just listen to it? No, what do you say? Remembering without ceasing first your work of faith. What happens? Folks, when faith blossoms in your life, it produces works. When faith blossoms in your life, it produces works. Those works come out of your faith. The works don't save you. They're the fruit of your faith. They're evidence that that faith is... How does faith come in our life? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Faith comes when we read these stories, when we study the Scriptures, we see God move and His Spirit ignite His, His church. We see all these things happening and our faith grows. And what does that cause us to do? It causes us to step out into Jordan. It causes us to get our feet wet. It causes us to step out and stand in the gap. The faith is going to produce the work. The second thing, your labor of love. Well, love produces labor. When you love someone, you are willing to sweat for them. Maybe you don't love them, you're not. But that love of God, that agapeo, that love of God poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit... According to, to Romans 5.5, 5, that love of God will produce within you a labor for your brothers and sisters. Your labor of love. That love working in your life. See, see Paul's ta- looking at these guys and he's seeing them the way God sees them. Their works of faith, their labor of love. And then he goes on and the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Patience of hope. Our hope produces 
patience. The Bible tells us what our hope is. Our hope is the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is the glorious appearing of Him. So I want to live my life looking for Him, expecting Him. Jesus said that that wicked servant, he he believes in his heart that his master delays his coming. I I don't want to be a wicked servant. I want to look for him every day. If he don't come, I'm not going to be disappointed because hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. Hope brings or produces in our life patience. Waiting for the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, right? They will mount up with wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and will not faint. Why? Because they wait on the Lord. Their hope is in Him. I will hope for God's touch in my life until mankind snuffs out my last breath. And if the Lord tarries and does not come, if God does not deliver me from my enemies, the moment that they take my last breath, I will see him face to face. And I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Hope does not disappoint. God will be everything that we need. Our hope is to be in him, hoping, looking for that glorious return. For our hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father. Do you see what he just said? Faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus said in, uh, through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. I'm a clanging cymbal. I'm a bunch of racket. Though I have faith, that I could move all mountains, and I say to this mountain, be removed and cast in the sea. If I have not love, it profits me nothing. You have all the manifestations of the gifts working in your life. If it is without love, it's racket. And it is not honoring to the Lord. It's all about working that labor of love. Whenever I think about that, I have, I have an uncle named Paul, Uncle Paul. I always think of Uncle Paul. He had five kids, and they weren't perfect. But in my entire life with him, I won't say that he never lost his temper. I didn't see him every moment. But I never saw him lose his temper. I once knocked a Mercedes off of a car lift at his auto shop. Didn't lose his temper. There's nothing good going to happen when a Mercedes falls off a lift, by the way. But he, he didn't ever lose his temper because his relationship with Jesus Christ was so evident. Now, now my parents, my, my father was a, a pastor still at that time. We went to church every day, but I saw the gospel lived in my uncle's life. Not just spoke, lived in his life. It was evident And the greatest point of that evidence wasn't in what he did, how he worshipped. It was all about how he loved. That's how it came through. That's how it shone in me. I I would see him and I would think, 
I cannot believe all the things that will happen, all the things that will go through, yet he's still faithful. He still loves his Lord with all his heart. And I, I, can, I can feel that love of God just flowing out of him. Just being near. I like being around him. I liked being in, the, in his presence. And I think that's what Paul's laying out for us here. Hey, it's that, that labor of love. God's love moving forward. And then verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Hey, Paul does something we say you can't ever do. Paul says he knows. The Greek word is eidos. It means to see, to perceive, and to make a judgment. He's saying he knows by looking at what these guys are doing that they're saved, that they're chosen of God, that they're elect. Paul says, I I see it in you. Where do you see it? Their work of faith, their labor of love. He saw it in that outpouring of the patience in hope. In all those things, he could look at them and see as, if you will, fruit inspector, as someone that could say, man, that is evidence that you belong to Christ. I know your elect. And I always love that concept of election. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, we are chosen by God. Before the foundation of the world, God picked you. He chose you. The scripture always talks about election, though. Every time it's used, election is always used from God toward those who are chosen. Never toward those who aren't. The scripture also indicates to us what? Whosoever will may come, right? That the call goes out to all. But guys, Peter would write to us that God's choice is based on his foreknowledge. And that's where it messes with our noodles. God's choice is based on his knowledge of what you're going to do. So if you want to know if you're chosen, choose Christ and we'll say you were chosen from the foundation of the world. Well, I'm not going to choose Christ. Well, then maybe you're not chosen. Well, that's not really fair. Well, they say that it's like when you get to heaven on the one side of the door as you're walking through, whosoever will may come. But if you turn around, what's it say? Chosen from the foundation of the world. Because God knew you were going to choose. So you were chosen in Him. You were called in Him. God's elect. And Paul says that election is clear in our works of faith, our labor of love, and the patience of the hope in Christ Jesus. That's where it's all at. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's a reality of the words on the page lived out in our life. Knowing, and then he uses this phrase, beloved brethren. That phrase was only used and applied to the supremely great men. But here, it is used of the saints. Beloved brethren. Loved of, that's the same phrase God used to Daniel. Paul's using now on the brethren, the body. Beloved of God, greatly loved in Him. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Our gospel did not come in word. 
It is in word and deed. It is in the act, the movement of God's Spirit. But not only that, the truth comes together when we see word and deed become one. Not just through this, but by power, dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit moving through the apostles. And they lived out what they said. Not only is it spoken, look, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Not just in word, but in power, in the dunamis, and in the Holy Spirit, in much assurance. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Hey, this is how this is moving through us. The word with power. The word and deed become one in the truth of God. Not in word only, but in both. We're going to see this outpouring. How was the gospel reached? How was the gospel preached? How was the gospel received? Well, first thing he says, in word and power. In word and power. It's not just about what you know, folks. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit moving through you. Sometimes God is going to give to you the logos, the word to share. Sometimes God is going to give you the rima, that spoken word, that that perfect word, that exacting word to reach into someone's life and touch them. But the point is, it's God who gives. It's God. You could get up every morning, go up on the street corner, grab a bullhorn and scream the gospel to whomever you want. But if it's not done in the power of the Holy Spirit and in love, it profits nothing. Zip. We want to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit, guided by the love of God. Not just word, but you notice he does say word. You know, I've shared before too, hey, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And if you must use words, what's that? What's the point behind that? The point is that your life matches your message. That's what he's saying. Not in word only, but in power. The power of the Holy Spirit matches our lives to the Word of God. That we are able to fulfill that call that God gives. So, first, this gospel came. And not in word only, but in power. And then what happens next? Look at the next thing. Next we see, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. So, as that words recede, we become followers of Jesus. We become followers of those, those people in our lives that, that guide us and lead us. For me, I was just sharing with you my, my Uncle Paul. If, if, if he could have said anything to me, he would have said the same words that Paul says. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as you see me following Christ. That we want to follow. Not just here. Not just see the evidence of that lived out in a life, but then we pick up this word and we use this as a roadmap in our life and we say, now I'm going to do what the word calls. Not here only. I'm going to do. I'm going to follow. I'm going to imitate him. I want to be like Christ. I want, to, I want the power of the spirit guiding and leading and working in my life. And so they became followers. And look what he says. You became followers of us and of the Lord. 
in a body, in our church, there's going to be people that will look up to you. And they're going to follow you as you follow Christ. And there are people that you're going to look up to and you're going to imitate as they imitate Christ. That's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be able to find those examples of following the Lord here among us. And then, the next thing is, having received this word of the gospel, in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Receive the word with joy. But you notice where they received it. In affliction. We don't like stuff like that here. We don't like that concept of the promises that Jesus gave all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Or in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. None of those things excite us. But look, they received the word, folks, even in great affliction, with joy. They received the word of God in affliction. It's in the furnace of affliction that the refiner's fire burns out the impurities in our life. We should not be afraid of the furnace of affliction. We should not be afraid to go into the fire. Because in the refiner's fire, isn't Jesus there with us? Doesn't his rod and his staff comfort me? Though I'm in the presence of mine enemies. Isn't that what the psalmist said in Psalm 23? That God is there cleaning out the dross, scraping out the garbage in our life. He didn't say we had to be full of glee and happy. He said we had to have joy. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. What is the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is that promise that hope that understanding that no matter how south things get here with him all things are restored all things are made right there will be no injustice in the presence of god there will be no lack of of mercy there will be just everything made right everything perfect every wrong thing turned back the way it ought to have been in Christ Jesus, in Him. So I can receive that Word of God and I can rejoice. I can rejoice because I look at it and I go, man, all this junk in this world is just that. And it will all wash away when I see Jesus face to face. I can receive the Word with joy. I'm not happy about the affliction that I go through, but I can rejoice That in that tribulation, God is working out His perfect plan in my life. He's developing in me the character that I need. That character that God's going to bring out in us. That character to help us to touch other people. To move forward, to continue to go in the way that God is calling us to go. As the Lord lays all these things out for us, we can receive the word in affliction. We can receive it. It's still good. It's still perfect. It still lights our path. It still shows us the way. We can receive that word in joy. And that's what he's calling to. Hey, receive that word, even in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's not something we work up. Can't just work up joy. That joy is found in the Holy Spirit. 
It's, it's found being connected to Him. It's not just the power of positive thinking. It's not just that concept that says, well, I, I'm just not going to mention anything negative. No, it's not about that. It's about, are you connected to the Holy Spirit? Are you walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit? The Bible says that that battle that goes on with us is going to happen from now till we see Jesus. It never stops. Your flesh don't ever go away and never come back again. It's always there. Trying new ways, new things. It is constantly at enmity with God. Constantly doing battle with Him. But we want to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to move us, to lead us. To give us the joy that we need. In verse 7 he goes on. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So what happened? They followed others as they followed Christ. They received the word with joy. They, they looked for opportunity to receive God's word and apply God's word to their life. And what happened? They became examples to other people. And it makes this cycle. And so now they go forward. And as they go forward, people follow them. And as they grow, they become examples. And then people follow them. And the concept is that this is constantly going to be moving in a movement of God's Spirit, equipping His people to meet the need where, where people need to know Jesus Christ. They're going to do that perfect work in and through them. So, in verse 8, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. In the Greek, that means heralded or was preached. That means God is calling us to look for opportunity to share the word of God with other people. To share that word. Remember we talked about it, right? The, the key to never having to worry about backsliding, spend 15 minutes a day in the Word, 15 minutes a day in prayer, 15 minutes a day looking for someone to share that Word and that prayer with. You do that, and you're going to be fulfilling. What's he say? That from you, the Word of the Lord was sounded forth, was preached. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. It's not just, again, the Word... But your faith in action. It's not just saying the Word of God. It's living the Word of God. It's not being hearers only, but doers also. Moving forward in the truth. Moving forward in the truth that God has. To preach. To share. Our faith lived out. Our faith toward God gone out. So that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us. What manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols. What does the gospel do in us? It tears down the idols. It sets aside the idol and sets up the Lord. It moves all that junk out of our life. The gospel is going to move that stuff away, and what replaces it? The desire to serve the living God. So here's what he's saying. Listen, I know this in you, that the Word of God moving out, not just in Word only, but in power. And you became followers. You received the Word with joy. 
You spoke forth that word and lived out that word in faith. You became examples to other people as you move forward. You set aside your gods or the idols that you served to serve God or to to follow God. And then you have a desire to serve the living and true God. That's why Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 could say these words. Hey, I have finished the work. Even though there were more people that needed saved, there were more people that needed healed, more movement of the Spirit was necessary. But what had he done? He had served God the way God called him to serve. And that's what we need to do. Where is God calling you in service? Folks, if we, if we only receive and the word that we receive never flows forth, then we are like the Dead Sea. Nothing will live in us. But if we allow the word that we receive to go forth, then we're like the Sea of Galilee. Jordan flows in, Jordan flows out. Sea of Galilee is full of life. The Dead Sea, water flows in, but nothing goes out. It's a picture in the physical world of what happens in a life of a believer who only receives and never gives. Who only receives and doesn't look for opportunity to serve. You know, all across the nation, really, there are churches on the brink of closing their doors. There are churches with five people, four people, so small are the congregations that that they can't even have a, a, a pastor or a preacher. They just have a layman who's willing to just volunteer his time and, and teach them on Sunday. And the folks want to receive. But the lifeblood of the church is not to receive. The lifeblood of the church is to give. To give of yourself. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about time. The lifeblood of the church is the kids. Reaching out, looking for an opportunity to teach a child the ways of God. Is that going to come back? Tenfold. A hundredfold. Because they're the next generation, aren't they? If we're just counting on us, we can't go far. We have whatever years we have left, and that's it. It's the kids that will pick up the banner and move forward. And so we need to look for opportunity to serve. How can I encourage? How can I reach out? How can I be a part? And and most importantly, God, what are you calling me to? You'll never cease to see a need. I've been to the Philippines, to Peru, to Russia, to Switzerland. I don't even know some of the places I've been. And I've seen in every place that I've gone, people that I wanted to help. I can't help them all. It's where is God calling me? And that's where the effort goes. If if you're going out trying to hit everything, you're not going to be effective in anything. It's where is the Lord calling me? Where is God directing me? Looking for that opportunity and meeting that opportunity in service. In serving Him and giving of ourselves to Him. To serve the living and true God. For there is always joy found in serving others. Isn't there? Never missed it once in my life. One time, got to go down to Mexico. We were building... uh, Garage door houses down there on the Baja, almost to the end of the Baja, a place called San Quintin. 
Mexico. And we go down there and we took, I don't know, maybe 50 kids from a youth group. We piled in a yellow school bus. We hid a bunch of Christmas presents because you can't take them across the border. They want you to pay for them or they'll take them all. So we, we smuggled them. And I know lawyers here, is there? We smuggled them across the border. We put them all under these chairs and we took them into Mexico. We went down and we we're building this house. And we go up to this house and as we're, as we're building this house, the kids, the kids are, are, are you know, it's not, you don't just order a concrete truck. You want to pour concrete, you shovel sand and rock into a wheelbarrow, mix it up, and you have concrete and you, with some cement. You dump it out, and then you do it all over again. So I've got these girls from youth group, like three or four girls, and they're shoveling, and the, the owner of this house, he's standing over on the side. Here are these girls shoveling sand, you know, the proper amount of sand, proper amount of rock, proper amount of, of cement, mixing it all up. And while they're doing it, they're singing praise and worship songs he don't understand nothing he don't really know for sure what they're saying but while he sat there and watched them he gave his life to jesus christ and became a pastor of the church there and today is still serving because four kids from youth group were given the opportunity to go they sang what was in their heart while they did the work and he saw the love of God in them. Not just the word preached, but the word lived. The word expressed. And he became a pastor. Now, those, those three girls who were a part of him getting saved, how many people have been saved in his ministry? Because they were faithful. That's fruitfulness. That's why the Lord said some will be fruitful 10 times, 30 times, 100 times. Because you don't know that one person you shared with, how many people they're going to affect. How many people that they're going to touch. People think everything needs to be done in these big ways, right? Do you know if you did a crusade every, every single month, a crusade, to 35,000 people came to the crusade and every one of those 1,000 people got saved, at the end of the year, you would fall even further behind than where we are evangelizing today. But do you realize if one person prayed, Lord God, let me lead one person to Christ this year. Do you realize if the whole Church just led each person, one person a year, that we'd be fighting over converts in no time? In no time. In one year, there'd be two believers. And in two years, there'd be four. And in three years, there'd be eight. But as you grew, you're going you're gonna to be able to reach the world. It's not that you have to talk to 100 people. Can't any of us do one person a year? That don't seem like a, a very hard thing to me. To share and lead one person to the Lord a year. And we'll change our world right now. Just look around. Just in who's here. And in the, in the whatever the number is that we have here tonight. If we all led one person this next year to the Lord, then we double. And then if we all led one person the next year, 
we double again and double again and double again. It's not an insurmountable job, but it's a job that we have to be willing to go. 95% of the church today has never led a person to the Lord, either through fear or, 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 you know, whatever, feelings of inadequacy, you know, whatever it might be. 95%, that's a lot of people that have never done it. If the church moved forward in, in the call that God gave, what could, what could change? What could be different? And then in verse 10, he says, and listen, finally, what's the gospel do? It causes us to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. One of the things that the church of Thessalonica had going with it was a, was a misunderstanding of ecclesiology and the return of Christ. And in fact, we're going to get to it as we go further. They kind of thought they'd missed it. And they were, they were caught up in a, in a you know, time of intense persecution and somehow they were, they were left behind. At the end, folks, of every chapter, Paul's going to put a verse like this. And to wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Look what he says. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who what? Delivers us from the wrath that is to come. So so we're at orge. It's that, it's that set wrath, that not talking about the fact that we'll never face persecution or hard times, but that the, we are not those who will receive the, the wrath of God. The wrath of God poured out upon his son. It's not for us. It's not designed for us. We may face the wrath of the world. We may face the wrath of the devil. We may face the wrath of people in our blocks. But you will not face the wrath of God. For the wrath of God, we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our hope. He's our trust. Put our our faith and our trust, wrap our hands around Him, and look for the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, folks, no matter what, one day, we're all going to be in glory. We're all going to not wonder about Jesus. We're going to see Him. We're not all going to wonder about what's going on or, or where our ecclesiology was or where our eschatology was. It won't make any difference. We'll have nothing to argue about when we get to heaven, will we? We'll all know the answer. And that is that desire, that hope that we want to grow within us. Don't believe a lie of the world that says, if you're too heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. That's bunk. Unless you're heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Because all the things on this earth, they're all going to burn. They're all going to burn. Only the things we do for the Lord will remain. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just thank you for this time we have to study your word, to open your scripture, Father, to allow your word to penetrate our heart. Father, may we receive it, may we apply it, may we move forward in the truth of your word. Lord God, we ask that you would guide, that you would lead, that you would direct, that this study would not be about one man's ideas, but Father, that it would be an opportunity for your spirit to speak to our hearts. So Lord, we just lay it before you and we pray, God, that you would move in such a mighty way, Lord Jesus, that you would equip us, that you would empower us, Father, 
One person a year. And we change everything. Lord, we just ask that you would move upon your body in a mighty way. That we wouldn't be among those that say, I've never led someone to the Lord. But we would be looking for that opportunity for you to do that perfect work through us. That we would be that excited church, that church moving forward, that church reaching out into the community, to the people around, Father God, that we might change our world. But that we might change our world for the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you might move in a mighty way this week as we leave from this place and go forward into the mission field. We ask that you would equip, that you would strengthen, that you would guide, that you would lead, and that we would follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to continue in.